0: Get ready for a journey into the heart of Bridgeport politics with In Absentia, a new podcast from Connecticut Public's investigative team, The Accountability Project. Learn about the city's past and present political dysfunction and the systems that enable it. Tune in wherever you get your podcasts.
1: Funding provided by Gregory Melville and Susan Fox and Kathleen Bromage.
2: Hello, hello, and welcome to the news. This was a nose we were supposed to do last Friday, but I I got sick, so we didn't do it. And for our troubles, or for my sins, or something, we have uh, taken the original plan for the nose, which was the problem with Jon Stewart, uh, his new Apple Plus uh, talk show. Uh, I don't know why that was such a hard term for me to get out. Uh, And The Harder They Fall, which I have been describing as Black Western Ocean's Eleven, uh, with, like, just kind of all your favorite actors doing fun stuff. Um, but there's more going on there than that, too. Uh, and to that, we have at the insistence of today's technical producer, Dylan Reyes, who's sitting in the Cat Pastor chair today. Uh, he said, you know, really, this this Taylor Swift video really speaks to me. And... Uh, Uh, You guys just shouldn't—you shouldn't pass that up. So we're gonna do it Uh, now. I mean, I have to say, Taylor Swift. She's like a draft. Like I can't keep her out of the studio. She just gonna gets under the door sill or something like that. I mean, I cannot tell you how many episodes we've done about Taylor Swift of the nose. I'm guessing that two of our three panelists today have participated in some of them. There's no way that Carolyn Payne, actress, comedian, dancer, founder, director, and choreographer of Kinetic Dance hasn't been part of several Taylor Swift uh, conversations. I would bet the same thing without actually knowing about Rich Holland, uh, principal at CoLab, uh, the founder of the Free Center, and commissioner on cultural affairs for the city of Hartford. And in the case of our third uh, panelist, Sean Murray, the question was would this cause Sean to cancel uh, if we asked him to watch a 15 minute Taylor Swift video? He's a stand up comedian, writer, and the host of the Nobody Asked Sean podcast. So they're all here. Uh, and yes, uh, <laughs> <laughs> Let's get this over with. Uh, so uh, Taylor Swift, who is constantly kind of repositioning and reconfiguring her catalog, partly because uh, of a, a dispute uh, over rights that would take too long to explain, um, uh, has put out a new version of an old song, actually several new versions of an old song. What we're going to be talking about right now is the song is called All Too Well. Uh, she has put out a 10-minute version uh, of all too well. She's also put out a new five-minute version of all too well, and then to top it all off, she made a fifteen-minute short film uh, that is all too well set to music, with uh, the occasional interruption for dramatic exchange. Uh, so, um, without further ado, uh, you know, because I, I know Dylan is champing in the bit in there to get this thing on the air, let's start playing a little bit of all too well, the ten-minute version.
0: through the door with you. The air was cold, but something about it felt like home somehow. And I left my scarf there at your sister's house and you still got it in your drawer even now.
2: So we're going to just fade that down under our conversation a little bit. It's going to run a long time anyway. So, um, uh, Rich, I-, I don't know which thing has burdened you more, the fact that I made you watch The Crown one time or the fact that I made you watch a 15-minute um, uh, Taylor Swift video uh, But um, but I think we should just get out here right now. Taylor Swift is really good at what she does. I mean, in terms of sort of dominating pop culture narratives, she's really, really good at this. She has, as The New Yorker pointed out, really figured out how to be a pop music star at this particular moment uh, in time. But uh, I don't know. Just give me your overall thoughts uh, uh, about this. Unlike The Crown, Taylor Smith, Taylor Smith,
0: see what I do? I I, I think that's the first time. This will be the first time I've actually said her name out loud. Taylor Swift does not offend. Um uh you know it's got a it all has a sweetness to it. She writes a heck of a hook and um and has mastery over harmony. Um and uh and every now and then she drops a couple of of sweet little gems like um comparing, you know, how one person keeps the other as a secret and the other as an oath. Um you know there's there's some beauty to it right um but it's a kind of it's pop cheap beauty right it's disposable it's disposable beauty you know you you fill up on it real quick and then it's gone and um and to uh stretch that out to 15 minutes the only way you could do it is to set it to visuals and uh we're at a point right now where visuals could be made by just about anybody in a really beautiful way. I mean, you know, folks who have no lighting and no crew can recast their videos using, you know, simple apps so that they look stunning and lovely and sweet like a Taylor Swift movie. Um, And uh, that is the rub, right? Um, If we can make things so easily and uh, without putting in our thousand hours, um, uh, what actually makes the medium matter anymore? Right. Uh, I think what makes the medium matter is is uh, daring to try something new. And this didn't try anything new. This, as you framed, it sounds like uh, we were repurposing some stuff because of some legal issues that were hanging out in the background.
2: Well, Um, yeah. Yeah. And I think also, though, Carolyn, one thing that we know is that if you and Taylor Swift grew up together and when you were six years old, you pushed her off a swing at the playground, there's going to be a song about it. There's probably going to be an extended version of that song later, uh, and if she has to make a short film to settle that score as well, uh, that's what she'll do. That there is one of the things that seems to drive her is settling scores, whether these are romantic scores. This uh, is the uh, song about a young woman who, uh, around the age of 21, finds uh, herself in a relationship with a somewhat older man uh, who might even be close to her father's age, according to part of the video, I guess. Uh, And then it all blows up the way things do. Although, I I would say, Carolyn, maybe I'm being unfair. I feel as though You know, Taylor Swift, she hangs on to this stuff for a really, a really long time. Uh, And so this the the settling of this romantic score is, in fact, sort of overlaid with settling this these kind of business and legal issues that she feels she has to work out. Plus, whatever challenge from Olivia Rodrigo she feels she must fend off, perhaps. But I mean, give, give us your take on it.
3: Yeah, I mean, obviously, revenge just really fires up Taylor Swift and helps motivate her. Uh, and I, I mean, look, like, I get it. Like, that's such, like, a music cliche. Like, you have, like, that Carly Simon, You're So Vain. You have Alanis Morissette with You Ought to Know. Like, it's, and, you know, it's always the speculation of who's the song about. And, uh, you know, there's relatability to that. Like, we all feel like we were wronged and you know there is something empowering about some of that rock that chick rock that the angry chick rock that kind of helps get you through it but like that's the problem for me with this song like it has it 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 lacks emotion to me if I just heard this song I wouldn't care about it I mean not that seeing this 15 minute short film that I think is basically at the level of like a you know student film project for me, uh, it also it doesn't. That had a little bit more emotion, but for somebody who's so driven by revenge, I'm kind of like, come on, Taylor, like give us some real, like <laughs> give us something more. Or definitely give us less
2: <laughs> yeah i miss the whole Katy perry feud at this point or the whole kanye feud or uh so sean one thing that i know that you've been doing is monitoring social media to make sure that we fully comprehend how this is being reacted to What have your investigations revealed
4: it just revealed that taylor swift fans are insane <laughs> um, sure. because like for the entire week it's just been people talking like like bothering Jake Gyllenhaal about a relationship that they had like 20 years ago, not 20, but whatever. Like it's, this it, just too much Taylor Swift going on in the world. I just, I just wish there was so much less Taylor Swift, or like I just didn't have to know about it. Like, I just wish, <laughs> like, like that's that's my problem with this whole video and the song and everything. And like Taylor like redoing her old songs. Like I wish she could just do this in private. And like I never had to find out about it. Just it, couldn't it just be just for Taylor Swift fans. Like just like create a new Twitter or something that's just for Taylor Swift fans. And just leave me out of it. I have no interest in Taylor Swift ever. And I don't think she's, like, a bad... I she's perfectly well-talented or whatever. But just, like, just go go away. Just go away. Like, I understand why she has to re-record her mask, like, re-record her songs because of, like, the, the, the label issues or whatever. But it's like, I don't care. And also, she's rich enough that even if she didn't record her song, she'd be she'd be fine for the rest of her life. So, like, why is this an issue that I have to contend with as someone who does <laughs> has never sought out a Taylor Swift uh, song ever once?
3: So, yeah. Sean, I take it you are not going to be going to get a Taylor Swift latte at Starbucks?
4: Well, no, no, no. no. Pump, pump your brakes there. I will definitely be getting a Taylor Swift latte to pour it out on video and piss off Taylor Swift fans <laughs> online.
0: <laughs> you know what? There's this there's this great, great, great uh, bit that I heard from uh, David Lynch uh, where he had walked into his therapist's office. In, um, and asked this therapist, like, yeah, there's the stuff that I've got to work on, but will it change my creativity? And the therapist said, well, most certainly it will change your creativity. And Lynch said something to the effect of, so I took my hat and left. Mm-hmm. Um, I get the sense that that's what's going on with Taylor Swift as well though, right? I mean, at this point, she's had to have done massive amounts of of therapy uh, to, to heal- oh, through these massive grievances that she's experienced and yet uh they persist so either she needs a a new therapist or there's a shtick that's going on here um that's manipulative
2: i think huey lewis would say she needs a new drug um (laughs) but um yeah i'll just just for the sake of being the devil's advocate or something I'll, i'll i'll say this you know it actually is a very nice pop song i mean it because the two main musical ideas in it are very similar, it's not necessarily a song that I would decide to elongate, you know, because it's not it doesn't have it's not dancing cheek to cheek or something. It doesn't have a lot of other musical things going on that you can play around with some more. But I do think that what she's tried to do is is to look at this in a different way, look at the the wrenching uh, heartbreak she experienced around the age of 21 from her perspective now she's 31 uh so she's (laughs) older and wiser although you know i mean and and she tried to play a little bit around with sort of uh with totems there's a scarf that's kind of suggestive of of, uh, 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 um, a totem that directs us back to memory and 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 maybe that we see things a little bit differently but even as i'm saying these words i'm realizing she doesn't really tell us how she sees it differently and (laughs) um so i give up um but anyway, it's out there. It's 15 minutes long. A lot of people really, really like it. Uh, go to TikTok to watch Sean pour out the Taylor Swift latte. He'll, <laughs> he'll let us know when that drops. Um, uh, and, and We can probably. Does anybody else have anything they need to say?
0: No <laughs> I was going to say something about <laughs> Duchamp, but it's just not worth it. All right yes. Um,
2: and I think it should be acknowledged that you know most for, for the most part we are not the target audience for all this stuff anyway. As I said to you guys earlier, I'm starting to feel like the only thing I'm the target audience for is the Kaminsky method, which is you know Alan Arka and uh, Alan <laughs> Arkin and, and Michael Douglas talking about how often they need to pee because their prostates are too big. so um, but you know there is an audience for this and and they will love it. I'm sure. And they already do. All right. We're going to move. We're going to move on. Uh, we're going to move to the king of late night political news commentary at one time. That would be John Stewart uh, making a long awaited comeback. Uh, he's uh, no longer doing The Daily Show. He's doing something on Apple Plus TV. It's called The Problem with John Stewart. Let's hear a little bit of how that sounds
1: first. Well, it turns out when you invade a country, they don't tell you when trash day is. So everything that the military wants to get rid of from rotting food to old uniforms to hazardous materials, medical waste, batteries to ammunition, armaments, entire trucks, nuclear waste, amputated body parts and the maraschino cherry metric tons of human feces, which obviously you don't want to pile that up on your base. You just want to put it right next to your base and then pour jet fuel on it and light it on fire. Perhaps a visual would be helpful. This black plume of smoke is coming from a burn pit. And these suckers are big, sometimes as big as 10 acres. And all the soldiers on the base breathed in that smoke 24-7. It got in their food, their clothes, their eyes. They could not escape it. And again, I cannot stress this enough. The most powerful and lavishly funded technologically sophisticated military apparatus in the world got rid of their trash the same way Jake Paul does. Oh wow. Oh god, it's already in flames. Oh my god. All
2: right, so um so Sean um So we're four episodes in now with this series. It's kind of interesting. I think he sort of lays a marker down. That's from the very first episode. And the very first episode of the four is the one that has the least comedic potential. You know, I mean, because he winds up talking to soldiers who have horrible health problems that appear to have been brought on by these burn pits or by adjacencies to these burn pits. And and in a way, in that first episode, it feels like he's saying, all right, if you're planning to judge me by ordinary comedy standards— you're going to have to recalibrate somehow, but I'm I'm interested in knowing your overall reaction to what he's doing.
4: I mean, I think it's it's good because it's John Stewart, and he he's always been good at what he does. But also, like John Oliver exists. Like we don't need we don't need John Stewart anymore, and that's I think that's the ultimate issue with the problems that John Oliver has already uh, superseded. Like what like he he gave him the he gave John Oliver the keys to the house and now he's trying to move back in. <laughs> <laughs> exactly.
2: The ele- elegantly put. Yeah. I mean, <laughs> Carolyn, how about you? Uh, how does this work for you?
3: I mean, it did. It did and it didn't. Like, I totally agree with Sean. The monologues at the beginning where he's sitting behind a desk, like, it kind of lures you in with this daily show nostalgia. And, you know, the thing that Jon Stewart is so great at where, you know, his facial reactions to absurd, like Fox News clips and stuff like that, where it cuts back to him and he's just snarky and it, it, you know, it takes you back to that. But the format of this is, then is so different. Um, And I think, you know, for me and I loved, I think my favorite part of the show were like the pre-recorded, like the little clips, like with LeVar Burton. Uh, You know, doing that kind of like nod to Reading Rainbow. And I I think those moments for me worked better than uh, they, they were. I thought they were really funny. So I guess I was looking for humor, but this isn't really a comedy show. This is much more informative and like a call to action show.
2: Yeah, um, we should say that the show is a kind of a melange of different things, ranging from uh, outtakes from staff meetings uh, to a, a, a monologue that that is uses a lot of the skills that, that we're familiar with that you have both kind of alluded to uh, with, with Stuart. I mean, he is amazingly good at sitting at a desk and somehow or other using little bits of body language, facial expressions, taking his voice from a whisper to a scream, although he's a little bit more muted this time around than he was on The Daily Show, uh, and and throwing to tape and reacting to tape, uh, uh, he's still really, really good at that. Uh, That's often followed by these these pre-produced, packaged pieces that tend not to involve him and are often kind of a high-production comedy thing, Uh, and that's usually followed by uh, an interview with a panel of people who are connected to whatever news Issue is going on there. I think I've sort of summarized uh, all the all the elements. So yeah, Rich, I I, I the question I guess that both of them is, have raised is, did we need this?
0: No. Um, so I was going to uh, to mention Marshall Deschamps over Taylor Swift, and in the same way, uh, um, I'll mention it over John Stewart. Um, DeChampin made this great statement a while ago, and I'm paraphrasing it, but it basically says, why bother with the originals anymore when the copies are so darn good these days? Um, uh, John Stewart abdicated his seat, um, and, uh, and it got filled a million different ways um, by a million different people uh, taking little bits of a shtick, and he's uh, trying to bring it all back together now, and it just feels overly familiar um I, I no longer know what John Stewart's bringing to uh this conversation that's new now there's a piece in his show that feels like it might want to be relevant um in that he uh he takes people in positions of power over some of these uh some of these significant um national causes and he holds them to task he gets them in front of the camera and they make non-committal commitments and, um, you know, or in, a way, in another way of saying it, they agree to things that they had already decided that they were going to agree to anyway. So it's kind of like this sort of forced community organizing approach. and um, And it just all feels insincere now. You know, I know that he cares about these issues, and I know that we all care about these issues, but I have no idea what to do with it after watching this show any longer. So we, I feel like I got pushed to this point of beyond entertainment. And at the end of the day, I was left with entertainment um, and and using some pretty horrific things as a way to push emotional buttons without actually our ability to do anything about it. So I just don't know why uh, Jon Stewart right now as much as I loved watching those couple of hours that I watched because as Carolyn said, nostalgia is cool.
2: Um, okay, so I, I have to play the same role I did last time. Uh, although I think I can do it with a little bit more enthusiasm this time around. And so Sean, one thing that I would say is that yes, John Stewart and, excuse me, John Oliver and others, but particularly John Oliver, as you said, kind of took over this whole idea and made it his own in a very specific way. And his stuff is very, very reported, often unearthed information that was not known by the public and not even well known by anybody in some cases. Um, he really has fused journalism and, and comedy in a very specific way. But, and, and I'm saying this to you in particular, Sean, as a comedian, I feel as though Stewart has a kind of comic repertoire that is really really amazing when he decides to do comedy uh, w- the kind of comedy that he did every night on the daily show I-, I always thought was completely remarkable I mean you know he's not he doesn't even have the uh, the option the way most late night hosts do. Uh, he, uh, it's the same for Oliver now, too, of moving around. You know, he's at a desk or a table. His same thing here. He looks like he's in the conference room of some wine bar on this thing. But but I do feel as though he has a kind of arsenal uh, of comedic abilities that that he funnels into social and political commentary that— that, see, I, I don't know. To me, Oliver plays in one or two keys, you know, and, and Stewart, when he's just using his entire arsenal, a little nuanced stuff and his own keen intelligence, he's, he's really, really good. What he's not good at, what nobody on late night has ever been good at, is interviewing people. So mm-hmm. I, I would have thought let's get rid of the interview thing, because that never worked on The Daily Show either, and instead we're getting more of it. But but I know, Sean, I'd love you to react to what I'm saying. I really do feel like Stewart is a very special kind of late-night commentator.
4: Well, I agree. I think, I mean, John Stewart I mean, is the reason why people wanted, you know, The Daily Show to come back, where we were upset that he left, why, you know, like, that, why this show even exists now is because there was people wished that someone as good as he was, because, I mean, I was a teenager when at the heyday of the um of John Stewart's Daily Show. So, like, I was totally in the bag for everything he was doing, him and Colbert. But I think the issue is not so much that, like, he's not good at it. It's that, like, sort of what Rich was saying is, like, what is the ultimate result? Because it's it, this is a lot more serious than The Daily Show um, uh, moment to moment, I would say like uh, the Show is like predicated on just this is this is a comedy show at the end of the day. Whether I'm talking about nine eleven or whatever, I'm gonna bring it back to comedy. This one, I feel like there's long stretches where it's not trying to be funny so much, but it's like wh- what's going to be a result? Like I think we live, we, we figured out that we live in a world where like like John Stewart is not going to make the difference. Unfortunately, I would love for him to be able. Again, I was a teenager when he was at his peak, you know. So like I I, I believe that like oh John Stewart says we gotta uh, get a bill done for. 9-11 firefighters, first responders. It's going to happen. It's not going to happen. So it's just like I rather it just be a comedy show in the vein of the Daily Show. What the problem with that is? Like I said, there's so many other imitators, or just be like I don't know. I don't know what other version of the show I would want. But it's like just like it's it's just it's, it's a weird thing. I, like 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 you said, he's he's incredible. He's 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 like you said, the way he can torch his face. He 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 plays so many different keys. But what, what do those keys amount to? Also, I don't want to have an Apple TV Plus subscription much longer, so it's not going to happen,
2: Ron. <laughs> All right, that's very, fair point, an absolutely fair point. So, Carolyn, I, maybe one last thing I might be interesting to talk about too is, you know, when things have changed a little bit since his prime on the Daily Show, and in some ways, I think you know, social discourse has gotten a little bit more serious and a little bit more self-aware and a little bit more worried. I guess what I'm thinking of is in particular is last June, as he was getting the his actual show ready to drop, he went on the Colbert show, and he did this whole thing in which he basically advanced the lab leak hypothesis about Wuhan, and he did it really at his real high-energy style, and so he's walking around and walking up to the camera and he's kind of screaming, and at one point he says, you know, imagine there's a outbreak of chocolatey goodness in Hershey, Pennsylvania, well, it could be that a steam shovel mated with a cocoa bean, but it's probably coming from the chocolate factory. Uh, and, and you know, it's kind of interesting because he moved the ball a little bit, moved the chains a little bit. There, There's a way in which shortly after that, the Wuhan lab leak hypothesis went from being kind of a crazy white wing theory to something that people really had to look at seriously. But the initial reaction was, oh, he shouldn't be saying stuff like that. And I wonder if you feel as a comedian like things are tightening up and what you can say in certain situations might be a little bit more constricted than it was uh, at the peak of Stewart on The Daily Show.
3: Yeah, I think totally. We're just in a totally different climate and place in the world. And I think that that's why this show didn't sit well for me because the start of it was kind of this like return to the Daily Show, which we miss. And the Daily Show was on in what we now I think can see as like simpler times, oddly. And so what this show does that was so weird for me, it was kind of like it it sort of bummed me out because it was like, this is where, whereas Jon Stewart used to get to just kind of be funny and do this commentary and make those faces and all this crazy stuff going on. It's like, now we've entered such dark times that he knows or feels that he can't just be funny. Like he has to be taking this seriously and be looking at this from a serious angle and be talking to experts and survivors and, you know really just a completely different angle. And for me, it kind of like bummed me out because I was like, wow, you know, like 10, 15 years ago, this, this wasn't what, what we needed. Like no comedian would have done this. And maybe, maybe that's cool. Maybe it is a cool new frontier where you get to kind of fuse comedy with this like activism and, and, and news and information, but that's a really hard line to toe. And if Jon Stewart, who is like the penultimate in political comedy. Can't really do that. I'm not sure it can be done is what we see here.
2: All right. We're going to grab a break right here. Come back. uh, Talk about the harder they fall.
1: I like to talk about social isolation as not just that individual's problem, but it's a community problem or it's a family problem. We need to connect with others. We can take space at times as well, but we need to step out of our comfort zone
4: and do things to connect with other people.
1: It's life-saving. For more information, go to ctpublic.org slash health.
4: We're going to play for you our first tune tonight. And the first tune is called Which means, let's start
1: what we have come into the room to do. (laughs) One, two, three.
2: Well, that would be fun just to sit here and listen to. You. That, of course, uh, is from it's Let's Start uh, by Felicuti and the Africa 70 with Ginger Baker. Uh, it's as heard in The Harder They Fall. Uh, and uh, here to talk about The Harder They Fall, which is on Netflix right now, Rich Holland, uh, Sean Murray, and Carolyn Payne are our panel today. The Harder They Fall uh, stars uh, a lot of your favorite black actors uh, Idris Elba, Delroy Lindo, Lakeith Stanfield. Uh, Regina King, Zazie Beetz, Jonathan Majors, uh, all uh, in uh, a Western that uh, has a kind of flashy Tarantino style uh, to it. Uh, and so I don't know. I just I might as well get the, the panel uh, started off just kind of talking about this. Uh, Carolyn, why don't you get us going this time? Uh, what was your overall take? I know you're not necessarily a fan of Westerns.
3: No. So I actually watched this with like no expectation for liking it whatsoever. But you know what? It was watchable. The soundtrack is killer. Like I downloaded all these songs. They're like all my new badass soundtrack. Uh, The acting is good. Like, you know, nobody's probably going to be getting an Oscar here, but it's fun. It's watchable. It's high octane action. Uh, You know, I, and I actually kind of liked the like saturated Wes Anderson set and costume thing going on. So, I mean, for me to say that I like something, it probably means probably means it's decent.
2: <laughs> <laughs> uh, yeah, Rich, how about you? How did you react? I, uh, you know,
0: I started off um, having made the mistake of reading up on all of the uh, light skinned, dark skinned um, actress controversy. Um, that I'm sure we'll talk about a little bit. Um, in that, uh, some of the, uh, in particular, uh, stagecoach Mary, played by Sazi Beats in this, um, uh, in this film, was, uh, you know, a dark-skinned woman, and Sazi clearly isn't, and um, and there were issues around the, uh, the, um, the inequities and lack of access for uh, for dark-skinned uh, black women in movies. So I started off watching this, um, you know, ready to be really offended and bent out of shape and, you know, and, and getting on a soapbox. And the addictive nature of this flick took over. You know, none of that mattered. Nobody was that was making this movie was, uh, was making a political statement or seemed to care all that much about political statements. They were making a great story uh, that was Full of holes and who cares because it had swagger and attitude and blackness and um and i just fell in love with it like carolyn i fell in love with this soundtrack um i have been forever uh writing um cowboy music from a from a decidedly black perspective and lo and behold I got to listen to this stuff actually produced really well, and it's pushing me into a recording studio Um, (laughs) because apparently there's a market for it. Uh, So exciting, cool, highly recommending.
2: Yeah, you may have to have some big names uh, attached uh, to your project uh, if you want. Yeah,
0: Denzel's going to do a read-along.
2: Right. So before we hear uh, from Sean about this, uh, let's hear a little clip. Uh, You're going to hear actually three of the, I would say, sort of more minor characters. uh, Eddie Cotthegui, I hope I'm saying that right, as Bill Pickett, uh, Archie Seiler, as Jim Beckworth, and Dan Wayans Jr. as Monroe Grimes.
4: What the hell is this playing quick-draw games when my ass is getting shot at? Hey, hey. You got your lucky coin, don't you? Grow up, Jim. This hey. is a real Grow, man. We can die. But we're not gonna die. So I'm lightning with the blam blams. Admit it. You know, you might could be. But I hear say there's a quick draw. More lightning than you. Go by the name of Cherokee Bill. Cherokee Bill. You hear say. You don't see say. So I say,
1: Cherokee Bill.
4: No, rather than complaining, you should be applauding my performance. Actually, the only words that should be coming out your black-ass lips... Oh, black-ass lips? ...should be... Gracias. That's more. Why not Wolf? Well. Black lips are beautiful lips. You you stop reaching Negro? God damn.
1: You just killed my brother.
4: Yeah, brother, calm down. Look like your day going a little bad. Better than you sons of bitches when you find out whose money you done f- with.
2: All right, so uh, so Sean, uh, just your overall uh, take on the heart of they fall?
4: I thought it was fun enough. I, I mean I, I really would have enjoyed like a, a, a better character piece. I think like picking these like kind of legendary black figures from the West and from you know black history like Nat Love and Stage Coach Mary uh, um, and Bass Reeves, and then um, just kind of throwing them together, it did not. I, I feel like the movie doesn't do enough to like really make me like 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 the the legend of Bass Reeves isn't isn't respected enough to me, or the legend of Nat Love. And I think like I think if they would have done more like character moments that really maybe connect. The only character I really cared about was um, Jim Beckworth, and I think it's because I, probably my favorite performance in the movie because he was fun and, and um, but. And his, but his character didn't need to be anything but fun, which is which is why it was fun. So when, uh, spoiler, like when he when he's killed, it, it hurts. But nothing else really affected me because I don't think they do a good enough, good enough job of like of, of building like. There's a, there's a scene in this movie where the, a character literally says, "Remember when you said we're gonna like what you want to do when like uh what you want to do with your money?" It's like why did you have the scene when he actually said that? So then it wouldn't just be like you recounting something for the sake of trying to make a. Uh, like create an emotional attachment to this character. If, if you actually go like, you know, show, don't tell. I think, I think my biggest issue with this movie is, is a lot of like, and actually uh, we're half brothers. It's like, like where, where do we ha- like where's the indication that in, in the story I, I don't know it was it was weird I, I thought it was watchable I, I I enjoyed the soundtrack and you know it looked it looked good but I, there, was, there was there was something missing for me
2: right well I mean if you're gonna buy it as you know genuine dramatic pathos <laughs> uh, you're gonna have to do that through the character of Nat Love played by Jonathan Majors uh, I mean just to, uh, everybody's kind of alluding to this I just want to make sure people understand this. But uh, we did a whole show uh, on, on Black Cowboys. We did, there's an incredible podcast called Black Cowboys uh, in which a lot of the characters whose names appear on characters in this movie uh, were talked about in, in much more historical terms. And at the time, I remember saying to the guy who does the podcast, wow, you could do a great movie about Nat Love. Wow, you could do a terrific movie about Bass Reeves. Uh, you could do a great movie about Stagecoach Mary. Uh, and they haven't done that here. I mean, there's... I think, almost nothing in this movie that maps particularly well onto the actual historical stories as we know them. Uh, But it's also an idea that is is important. It's clearly important to Idris Elba. This is the second movie he's done in a very short space, uh, which explores this, Concrete Cowboys, uh, which is also kind of an enjoyable movie, but it's set in modern times. It's set in Philadelphia. It's about something similar to Hartford's Ebony Horsemen and Ebony Horsewomen, a group of people trying to keep some of that ethos alive. But, but yeah, I mean, Rich, just to swing back to this, I don't know. I, I did feel as though they could have just called everybody by made up names. I, I don't think there's any real benefit reaped by giving them the names of these historical figures. And if anything, it kind of muddies the waters.
0: I, I think that there was a lot of benefit to to giving them historical names. It's that um, you then, you know, you know, right away that these are important characters. Period. That's the that's the whole benefit of it. And now on with the enjoyment, you know, then we go on the the Disney ride with lots of um, you know, blood gore and and profanity. Uh the, ordinarily I am such a stickler uh for form and the the seriousness um of of the craft and this time. I'm just, I am in it for, for the fun. I am in it for, as I mentioned before, the, the swagger. I'm in it for Idris Elba having perfected this, like, oh, I guess this moment's calling for Idris Elba, isn't it? Look, that he can get on his face. Um, it all worked for me in a way that was campy. Um, and I am so delighted uh, to see um, a Black director um, uh, be able to, to do a piece, uh, where he doesn't have to get every little bit of it perfectly. He do something that's just there for entertainment purposes, period.
2: Yeah. I mean, on on that basis, I mean, we're back to the kind of oceans 11 concept, you know, this is mm -hmm. actors who, you know, can do better work. Um, but are just having a lot of fun doing this particular kind of work uh, and, and maybe you're up for just maybe being entertained in a more conventional way. Although, I just want to go back to something that you said, uh, Carolyn, which is, I mean, I think this is a great-looking movie. I wouldn't say it looked like a Wes Anderson movie. There'd have to be yeah. way more teal-colored things, you know, and <laughs> and more, way more whimsy and purple and stuff like that. But I know what you're saying, and there are these weird moments. There's one point where kind of the the more bad guy contingent uh, has taken over a a saloon and one of the good guys walks in and there's like this blue woman who's kind of dancing around. I mean, she's like, her skin is blue. And then there's somebody else who's singing some kind of art song in the background. And it's, I, I don't know what it's supposed to be an echo of. I'm having a hard time imagining that at any point in the West, this particular scene was unfolding. But, but I guess, Maybe the, Carolyn, that's one of the things we're enjoying, right? This thing is saturated with with color and landscape and, and music. It's just kind of a, a treat for the senses.
3: Yeah, for sure. That like Cirque du Soleil woman was a little bit uh, misplaced in the <laughs> in, in in this in the scene, but there were a lot of colors for like the Wild West. I mean, again, I haven't seen a lot of like cowboy movies, but I have been to places like. You know, I've been to Texas and Arizona and nothing is like brightly, you know, you don't get these like looking towns like that, these sets. It it was kind of like a the Disney ride version of the Wild West. But it was cool. And 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 the saloons with their kind of like Moulin Rouge-esque performances. I mean, I was just I I had no I had no expectations with this movie. And I think that that's the best way to go into it. Just be like, I'm going to watch this and enjoy the ride and have fun.
2: So, you know, Sean, let's end by uh, by bringing uh, Rich's Marcel Duchamp uh, thing back in. There's a way in which this seems like a boldly original thing uh, in the sense that it would be hard. I mean, you, you could have to compare it to a pastiche of other things. But is there a way in which it's a little bit too Tarantino-y? to be to feel completely uh, original i'm really kind of talking more you know about the graphics and, and the the overall presentation is it uh, is it you know a copy of something that's almost as good as if not better than the original well
4: that's i think that's the issue for me is that the Tarantino comparison doesn't do this movie any favors because Tarantino just does it better uh, and, and I, I like the Django Django Unchained is a contentious movie in the black community because it's directed by Quentin Tarantino but I think it's a more effective movie it's just a stylistic it's just but I think it's more pathos to it I think there's more there's more heart to it there's a better story at the center of it and it doesn't have to use like the name like Bass Reeves or Nat Love and then just just as like as a way as an entrance point it's, just, it's a character that you don't know and there's the issue of like uh the slavery aspect and people are tired of seeing like black trauma on film. But I think the trauma is used effectively in that movie to tell that character's story. Um, I think in this, in this case, it's very stylish. I, I think it's, I think it's well done. I think it's just not at the level of Tarantino. It's not the, uh, Marcel Duchamp, uh, uh, situation because it's not, the imitation is not as good. It's, it's very good, but it's, I mean, Tarantino is just the best. It's not, it's not the fault of the filmmaker. It's just, Tarantino is the best at what he does.
2: Alright, we're going to have to stop there. I would just jump in and say this is sort of an early endorsement. I would watch Lakeith Stanfield do pretty much anything. And watching him be Cherokee Bill <laughs> is more than just anything. He, it, he really is an awful lot of fun. He always seems to be inhabiting a slightly different world from everybody else. You just look in those haunted eyes. Uh, Alright, so uh, it's The Harder They Fall. It's on Netflix. We'll take a quick break. We'll come back. We'll make some recommendations.
0: Have a long be damned. Venture foreign lands, I laid my sword in the sand, I've made my peace with man. They lay by the beast as far as my eyes can see. I seek a golden fleece. One day you'll make a peace. So don't tear my hand, I'm just a man, a deadly scene.
2: Usually at this time I'm saying thank you to our technical producer, Kat Pastor, who's uh, somewhere in the background right now. But our uh, terrific intern, uh, Dylan Reyes, is the technical producer of the show today. He's also filing some kind of action against me for claiming that he likes Taylor Swift. Uh, And uh, this episode was produced, as it almost always is, by Jonathan McPants. Uh, With us today, uh, Sean Murray, Carolyn Payne, Rich Holland. Uh, They're going to make some recommendations uh, right now. Um, Rich, why don't you get us going? Gladly.
0: Um, a couple of really quick ones. Uh, first, the beginning of Taylor Swift's video started with a uh, with the Neruda quote. So do yourself a favor. Read uh, everyone's <laughs> favorite Nor- uh, Nobel laureate directly. Twenty love poems and a song of despair. Pablo Neruda. Just read it over and over again, and you'll feel much better. Um, next, uh, I want to recommend. Um, in uh, in response to John Stewart and what's not really working there, uh, check out um, someone who actually really owns uh, that's the space of standing on an issue, uh, Steve Buscemi, and um, a good job stories of the uh, um, FDNY. Hmm. And lastly, in in the context of those lovely little short films uh, that are about video that are about music. Um, check out Leon Bridges river. Uh, it's a short seven minute piece. Uh, it doesn't pretend to be anything, uh, but a little context for the music and it's just beautiful and astonishing. And in fact, the whole album coming home, uh, is worth listening to.
2: Yeah. I've been enjoying uh, some other cuts from that album as well. Uh, Carolyn Payne, how about you? What have you got?
3: Uh, I would like to recommend the new season of Curb Your Enthusiasm that is out. Uh, it's like unreal to me to think that Larry David Curb Your Enthusiasm has now been on for like 20 years they are spread out uh this season kind of responds to where we're at in the world in a really in, in a in a cool way in a Larry David way uh and I I just think it's amazing that time and time again this show just like makes me laugh and it Presses all the buttons of all the things that you're fired up about, and maybe even gives you new buttons to press. He's just, I, I love it. So if you haven't watched the new season of Curb Your Enthusiasm, get in on it.
2: All right. Uh, Sean Murray, how about you? What have you got to, to recommend to us?
4: I'd like to recommend uh, a very uh, enjoyable podcast that I listen to called Dead Eyes, uh, hosted by Connor Ratliff. And it's a podcast about an actor. Uh, Connor Ratliff was uh, cast in HBO's Band of Brothers in the year, the year 2000, and he was fired and he was told that he was fired from it because Tom Hanks believed that he had dead eyes in his audition <laughs> tape. And uh, it's a, a podcast investigating, like, what does that even mean? Uh, like, what does it mean to have dead eyes? He's been trying to get Tom Hanks on the podcast. He's gotten a lot of people who worked on the show. The guy who replaced him on the show, he had on the show. It's a very funny show. He's got great guests. he said, Seth Brody. He's had Damon Damon Lindelof from Watchmen and Lost. It's um, just very funny. I mean, he asks all the important questions, like, why am I even doing this? Why am I not over this 20 years later? It's just a really... Uh, Enjoyable light podcast.
2: All right, um, I am going to recommend apropos of John Stewart. Uh, something that was actually originally produced by CNN uh, and is now migrated over to HBO. I also want to quickly note that Richard Plepler, who is responsible for really kind of the HBO brand at, at its kind of most perfectly curated uh, and who left, I think, as a result of kind of a dispute uh, with the new overlords from AT&T uh, and, and Warner. Um, Richard Plepler is involved in somehow or other in producing this John Stewart thing, which, which is just interesting to me. I, I know Plepler a little bit. Uh, And I've been wondering where he's going to surface and what he's going to do. But anyway, HBO uh, right now or HBO Max has this thing called The Story of Late Night. Uh, It's a six part docuseries, uh, which uh, is which examines late night television, the late night comedy talk show uh, from its uh, very earliest origins. Uh, One of the things we are reminded of or informed of for the first time, depending on who we are, is that so many of the things that uh, David Letterman became famous for, the kind of Dadaism of wearing a Velcro suit and jumping off a trampoline and sticking to uh, a flat surface, these were done by Steve Allen. Uh, They were (laughs) They were done, I think, with less petulance and more joy, uh, less dismissiveness of popular. I mean Letterman's whole point really is he doesn't think popular culture is very good. He doesn't think late night television is very good. So he could do this Dada stuff like throwing a watermelon off a tall building. And that's just as good as what he would have done otherwise. Uh, Alan did it in a different spirit. But the the series really takes you through all kinds of different changes and goes through some of the late night wars, who was going to inherit The Tonight Show. And I know it doesn't sound that interesting, but everybody that I have recommended it to uh, informally has been just nailed to their seat watching it. <laughs> so, I mean, there's something very, very addictive about the whole thing. And you realize that, that you know, this is sort of a place where at one time or another, most of us go and and spend, you know, some of our evenings. Uh, and, and and that it has a, a particular history and story and set of tropes and stuff like that. So it's called The Story of Late Night. Uh, it's on HBO. I could also recommend, I just rewatched the fourth season of The Crown. Uh, I could recommend that just to make Rich upset. Uh, but I won't. Uh, anyway, thanks so much for listening uh, today. Uh, thanks to our wonderful guests, Sean Murray, Rich Holland, uh, and Carolyn Payne. Thanks to Dylan Reyes for running the board, uh, to McPants for producing. We are actually, this our, our overlords here at CT Public, they kind of all want us to take next week off. So we're going to do that. <laughs> <laughs> we're good. We have some great shows from the past to share with you, but and some specials that will come up, too, as we go along. But we're not going to be around next week. I hope you can enjoy some holiday time, some time with people that you love, uh, and then we'll be back a week from Monday to start scaring and upsetting and amusing you. Talk about
1: Torrington, Vernon, Danbury, Waterbury, yeah. Oliveberry, Woodbury, hitting on New Britain, Vernon, I already said that one, Avon, Farmington, yeah, 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 yeah.